Now, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Joshua 24 and Proverbs 29. We're beginning a new series this week called A Vision for Your Family. Now, what happens a lot of times when churches do series on families, a lot of people check out because they say, well, I don't really, you know, I'm not married, I don't have kids, anything like that. But you know what? You still have a family. Uh, that's the amazing thing. You don't get here on this earth without a family. And even if you don't have any brothers, sisters, or parents, or cousins, or anybody else, if you are the last of your line, you still have friends that have families. So I encourage you, this is going to be a good series. It's going to be a great time for us to continue to learn uh, what it is that God's called us to do and how we've been called to be a family together. Uh, and really, the family is an interesting thing because it can be the greatest source of joy in your life. You know, when things are going well with your family, like let's say you took the whole family to Disneyland. And there's those moments where it's like, this is the most perfect time. I'm so happy. I don't need anything else in the world. My children are rising up. They're calling me blessed. We just got Princess Anna's autograph. Everything is right with the world. But then there are those times when you're at Disneyland and your kids are crying and the lines are long and it's hot and you're like, why on earth do I have a family? I can't imagine. It's like families take you up to the highest heights of joy and elation. They take you down to the lowest pits of despair and frustration all at the same time. And the reason for that is because your family is one of the number one ways that Satan wants to attack your life. You see, what we, what we have in a family is when we look at what a family is, it's one of the best representations that we get of who God is. It's one of the best representations and pictures that we get of the way that God loves us is the way that we love each other inside of a family. You know, so many people have trouble understanding God's love for them. They don't understand a father that's always there for them because Satan has come along and he's worked out his plan in their life and he's caused a situation in their life where they've been fatherless. They've had an absent father. So they have trouble understanding that there's a God, a father, who loves them and is always there for them. People that didn't have a mother that was nurturing to them, that was there for them, that cared for them. They have trouble understanding that we have a God that nurtures us and that cares for us. And that when we're hurt and when we're broken, he's hurt and he's broken for us and he comes to our aid and he nurses us back to health. People that don't know what it's like to have an older brother or sister that cares for them and loves them and pulls them up and encourages them. They don't understand what it's like to be a joint heir with Christ. They don't know that Jesus has now become someone that's a part of our family and that he's our advocate. He's the best advocate that we have. What happens is the same continues to come to attack your family and to destroy it so that you don't understand the way that God loves you. And the people that have really strong families, it's easy for them to understand the kind of love God has for them because it's been modeled for them. I have an incredible father. I'm so grateful for him. I'm blessed. It wasn't anything I did. I was just born to someone that was a great dad. And he's made a lot of sacrifices for me. I've seen what it's like for a father to sacrificially love me unconditionally, to be the one who provides everything that I need. And so it made it easy for me to connect that with the way that God the Father loves me. You see, we all have to recognize that our family is a battlefield, that it's something that's going to be contested, it's something that's going to be attacked, but it's a fight that is absolutely worth fighting. A lot of times I think of a family in terms of art. Uh, have you guys ever wanted to, to be an artist and so you get all of the supplies that you have and you have you know, the pencils and the crayons and markers. I don't know what artists use. I'm not one, clearly. But you have all of these raw materials in front of you and with these, some people are able to create a masterpiece and then other people can't even draw a stick figure. The raw materials are all there that are the same, 
but it comes down to what the artist is able to do with it. And that's the same way with families. We'll have the same raw materials. You have brothers, sisters, cousins, nephews, nieces, all of those sorts of things. But just because you have those in front of you doesn't mean that you're going to be able to create the kind of family that you want. I decided I was going to try to get into art once as a kid, and I ordered a kit. And it came with, you know, like the paper, it was like a canvas type of a thing. Uh, some of the, the pencils, pastels, I remember the charcoal, I liked that for shading, but mostly I just used that to, to draw on my sister's cheeks. But it came with a VHS tape. I don't know if you, some of you guys are like, what's a VHS? But it was a VHS tape, and you put it in there, and there was a guy that walked you through, and he was going to teach you how to be an artist. So remember, I got all my materials out in front of me, and I was excited. I was going to finally learn how to draw. And I, I hit play on the tape, and the guy's like, okay, now take out your paper and your pencil, and what we're going to do is we're going to do a warm-up exercise. I want you to close your eyes with a pencil in your hand, and I want you to just place the pencil on the page, and I want you to just make a doodle without looking. Like, All right, the art's easy. I can do this. And so I made my doodle, and he said, now open your eyes, and I want you to look at this doodle that you've created, and I want you to use that as a part of a person's face. I was like, What? He's like, it could be an ear, it could be a nose, it could be their hair, it could be their chin, it could be anything. You just have to now use this doodle to create something beautiful. And so he's showing all kinds of doodles and he's making awesome faces out of them. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at my doodle and all I can see is a doodle on a paper. There's no face here. I can't do anything with this. But what happened was I discovered that the key to art isn't necessarily the, the skill that you have. It's not the utensils that you have in front of you. What separates an artist from someone like me is that they have vision. They can look at that doodle and they can see a face in it. But when I looked at that doodle, all I could see was a doodle. I have a couple of pictures I want to show you. This first one is a, a famous mountain. Any of you guys know what mountain that is? Oh, no, you don't. Uh, you probably do, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> when I look at that, I see a mountain. But when an artist looked at it, they were able to see this. We know that. They had a vision for it. They saw something that could be done with it when nobody else could. And now the next one, this is a, a statue that you guys all know. This is David, a very famous PG version of David. <laughs> it's a family church. <laughs> and... What, what this beautiful sculpture came from, though, was this. It was just a block of marble. But Leonardo was able to look at a block of marble and he was able to see something beautiful inside of it. He had vision to be able to create something great. He was able to create a masterpiece from it. Those are what artists do. When I try to create art, I close my eyes, I draw doodles, I stare at blank pages, but nothing ever comes to me. I don't have the vision that it requires to make something that's great. Every artist that's ever created a masterpiece, it all started out as an idea that they had in their head. It started out as a vision that they had of what could be. And then they went and they pursued it and made that a reality. Now this isn't just a principle that's for art, but it's a principle that is for every area of your life. You have to have vision in order to be able to create something that's great. In Proverbs 29, 18, it says this, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Not only is vision required for you to be able to make something beautiful, but if you don't have vision, it says that you're going to perish. 
And that might seem like it's kind of harsh or maybe an exaggeration, but really it's not. Think about this. If you were going to start a business and you didn't know what it was that you were going to sell and you didn't know who you were going to sell anything to because you had no vision for it, what's going to happen to that business? It's going to perish. You, that business will not survive. If you decide that you're going to build a house but you have no blueprint, you have no vision for it. You say, I'm just going to go out there and I'll just dig a hole, pour some cement in there, make a foundation, and then I'll build some walls and a ceiling and we'll just kind of see what happens. That house is going to fall down on you. That house will perish and you will perish along with it. And the same thing is true with our families. If you want to build a family, you have to have a vision for what you want your family to be. Because without a vision for your family, your family will perish. Now, all of us, we have families, we all came from somewhere, and we all want to have great families. Nobody thinks, I hope that in my family, you know, 20 years from now, my kids hate me, uh, my spouse has left me, we hate each other, we're all losers. Nobody says, that's my vision for what my family is going to be. You want to have a family that's loving and caring for each other. You want to be together 20, 50 years from now. But do you have a vision for that? Is it just a hope that you have? Is it an idea that you have? Or is it something that you can see? Because great families don't happen on accident. Great families don't happen as you go along. Great families always happen because there was a vision that you had that you then followed out and saw it become a reality. So the first thing, if you want to have a great family, is you need a vision for that family. Great families always happen to those who have a vision for it. Now, after Moses uh, died, there was a guy named Joshua who took over. And he was leading the nation of Israel and they were going through and they were taking the promised land. All kinds of incredible things happened in the life of Joshua. And as he's getting ready now to pass on the torch to the person that's coming after him, he gathers the entire nation of Israel together and he addresses them. This is his final address, the final words of encouragement, the final warnings for them as he's passing on the baton. And he says this to them. He says in Joshua 24, 14 through 15, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now Joshua had a vision uh, for the nation of Israel, for all the families in the nation, but more specifically, he had a vision for what his family was going to be like. And it was a simple vision. He said, as for me and for my household, and that meant the family, everybody that lived inside of his house, we are going to serve the Lord. It's a simple vision. What's his family going to do? They're going to serve the Lord. It's not complex, it's easy to remember, but it's a big vision. That is a huge vision that he has for his family. Now, why did he pick out this one thing that he was going to say? And clearly his vision for it went beyond just this one sentence statement. But that was the starting point for it. Did he want his kids, or did he himself want a great marriage? Yeah, I'm sure he did. He didn't say, we're going to serve the Lord and I'm going to hate my wife. But he said that it comes back to, first and foremost, I'm going to serve the Lord. Did he want his kids to get married and have great marriages? Yeah, absolutely. Did he want to be a grandpa and enjoy all the things that come along with that? 
Yeah, of course he did. Did he want his children to be able to make a way for themselves in the new promised land? Did he want them to have nice homes? Did he want them to be safe? Did he want them to have long, healthy lives? Did he want them to be happy? Yeah, of course he wanted all of those things for his family. But he recognized that the only way that you can have all of these other things is if at the very core foundation of who you are is that you're someone who serves the Lord. He knew that every other blessing that came in life came from being a servant of God. He knew that the reason that he had been so blessed in his life was because he had been someone who served God. And he knew that the only way that his children would be able to live on and continue living in the blessing of God is if they came and they decided that they were going to serve God. He knew that the only way the generations that came after him would ever know this kind of a great family, have an intimate connection with each other, and live out God's plans and purposes for them was if they came and they became servants of God. Now, there's a lot of things that you can have in life. You can have a long, healthy life. You can have great homes. You can have money. You can have cars. You can have all kinds of things. And you do want those kinds of nice things for your family. But at the end of the day, if that's all you have and you don't serve the Lord, then at the end of the day, none of that stuff mattered. But if all your family ever has is a heart for pursuing Jesus and serving Jesus and you never have the cars, you never have the money, you never have the homes, then you know what? You still had everything in this world that ever mattered. That's why I love that hymn, you can have this whole world, give me Jesus. That's why Paul, this is one of the hard verses in the Bible where he addresses people who are living as slaves. And he says to them, like, look, the biggest goal of your life isn't freedom. If you can be free, then by all means, do whatever you can to attain your freedom. But being free in the eyes of man, being free from oppression from other people, that's not the biggest goal of your life. That's not the thing that's going to make or break your life. It says the greater thing is knowing Jesus. And that's why Paul said when he's been beaten, he's living shackled in the sewer underneath the royal palace, he says, everything else that I had in this life when I was a Pharisee, when I had money, when I had family, when I had status, I count that all as rubbish. I had everything this world had to offer, but I didn't have Jesus. And I would rather live chained up with literally the excrement of the royal family falling on me in a dark dungeon because here I have Jesus. And that's true for our families. We have to make sure that the vision that we have for our families isn't to give them something that doesn't matter, something that doesn't last. It has to be that we are going to help our family, teach them, and, and lead them into a place where they know Jesus and where they're loving him and where they're serving him with everything that's inside of him. So the question for you today is, do you have a vision for your family? Do you have the right vision for your family? Because it all starts, every great family always starts with a great vision and then you move into pursuing it. Now, a vision isn't all that you need to have a great family. Uh, we're all dreamers. I mean, we've all had incredible visions for things we're going to do that we haven't done. In fact, really, a great vision can become a great source of frustration to you if you don't have a plan that gives you a path to achieve this vision. So the second thing that you need is you need a plan. And Joshua didn't just cast vision for what he wanted his family to look like. He had a plan for how it was that they were going to get there. He said, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
This was the plan. This is how they were going to serve God. As he says, the first thing started with, we have to fear the Lord. And this is, if you, the way we typically associate the word fear is like, oh, I'm scared of something. Please don't hurt me. But that's not what this means here. The word fear here means a great respect and reverence. It means to consider something to be hallowed or to be exalted. It means to be in awe of something. You guys remember the first time as a kid you went and you saw just massive, huge fireworks? And you were a little bit scared of them because they were big, they were beautiful, they were loud, but you were just held in awe of it. That's what this is talking about. There's this reverence. There's, you guys have had those moments maybe where you saw something in nature, like this is a, a hallowed place, this is special. This isn't common, this isn't ordinary, this is something different than what's natural. And that's what he's talking about here is we have to have a great respect and a reverence for who God is. You always see those shirts that say, like, Jesus is my homeboy. And I'm like, no, he's not. He's the almighty creator of everything. He is the all-powerful one. He's the one that spoke everything into existence. He's the one that sustains everything. He isn't our homeboy. He's our, our brother. He is our God. He's good and he's loving, but he's not like us. He's not like us at all. We're learning to become like him, but he certainly isn't like us. We have to have that reverence for him, for who he is, for his holiness, for his power, for his might. That when we come before him, we aren't just coming before something flippantly. We're coming before the almighty, all-powerful God. The one who reigns and rules supremely over all things. The sustainer of my very life. He, he said that we have to fear the Lord. That's the beginning of the way that we serve him. And then he says that the next thing is we have to serve him with sincerity and with faithfulness. And that word serve means to minister to God. Now we always think of, you know, there are priests that they do ministering to people. We think of God as ministering to us, but we're called also to minister to God. That's what we do. That's why we serve him. We're blessing God. We're doing something for him to express our gratitude, to express our love. We're trying to express the worth and the value that he has. And he says that we're not just supposed to serve God, but we're supposed to do it with sincerity. And the word sincerity there means uh, honesty. It means to do something without pretense. Uh, this is something that is really hard. You see people all the time. Why do we do things? Because we're looking to get something out of it, right? One of my, the biggest examples of this that we see in the church, and it drives me absolutely insane every time I see this, is if you're watching you know, someone preaching on TV like nine times out of ten, they're going to ask you to sow a seed, and you're going to get some triple favor back in return. Or they'll sell you a prayer. I love that. I'm going to sell you a prayer. For $50, I will pray for you, and I'll send you a handkerchief. I'm like, I don't want your handkerchief. I'm not going to give you $50 for it. Or they want to sell you holy water. That's my favorite one. You know, there's some guy in the back of a room somewhere in Mexico filling it up with tap water and sending it up to us, and they're selling it to 100 bucks. How many times have you heard someone say, you know, uh, if, if you give financially that God's going to bless it, like God is this big Ponzi scheme idea, like I'm going to give $100 and I'm going to get 1000 back. And so you see people, and they're, they're giving financially because they want to receive something back from God. That's not serving him with sincerity. That's not serving him with honesty. That's serving him because you're looking to get something back out of it. You know, the reason why we give is, number one, because God told us to. It is a way to keep our hearts in check and to recognize who he is as our sustainer and provider. But then the, the second reason, we give joyfully because of the fact that our hearts are connected to God's kingdom causes. 
Now there is a promise. God says that when we honor him with our finances, that he rebukes the devourer and he pours out blessing on us more than we can contain. But it doesn't say that you're going to have financial blessing poured out on you. When the, when the Israelites were walking through the desert, he made their sandal straps last 40 years. That's a miraculous blessing. might not have been the one they were hoping for, but it was a blessing that God poured out on them. But the important thing is when we come to God, we're not serving him in order to get something out of it. We're serving him because we love him. We're serving him because our heart is to minister to him. We want to bless God. That's why I love that song, Bless the Lord, O My Soul. When we come to God and serve him, it can't be out of pretense. We're coming honestly before him and we're serving him, we're ministering to him, not to get something back in return, but because our hearts are for him and our hearts are for the kingdom cause. And then he says that we have to serve him with faithfulness. That means there's a consistency to it. It's not that we come and that we serve God uh, you know, between the hours of 10 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. It means that we view ourselves as we are servants of God 24-7. Every moment of our life, with everything we have, I use everything I have to serve God, to minister to him, to bless him. And that only isn't just talking about faithfulness, but it's also talking about the fact that we are faithful to only serving God. And that's a tough one for us. It means that we serve only God and not other things. And that doesn't mean that we don't serve other people because a part of the way that we serve God is by serving other people. But what it means is that we have to put away other gods. This is what he says. He says, I want you to put away the other gods that you used to serve when you guys were living on the other side of the river. And we think, well, that's easy for us. I don't have any stone statues or wooden carvings in my house that I'm worshiping. But that's not what a god is. What a god is is anything that you look to to provide you with something. We say, uh, this is going to control or increase some area of my life, so I'm going to look to this God to do that thing. And when we worship, what that means is not that like we're bowing down on our hands and knees and saying, like, oh, great wooden frog, bless me with fertility. It means that we're coming, we're ascribing value, we're ascribing worth, we're giving time and energy to something, looking for something in return. So these are the gods that we serve. Uh, think about this, God. We spend 40, 50, sometimes 60 or more hours a week serving this God because we think that this God is going to give us a sense of purpose, it's going to give us fulfillment, it's going to give us some level of status. What God is that? That's our careers, our jobs. We spend a lot of time and a lot of energy at our jobs, and you should. Jobs are a blessing from God. He gives us a way to have provision and to take care of those that are around us. You should work. But when you look to your career to be something that's going to bring you fulfillment, when you look to your career to be something that's going to give you a sense of purpose or give you a sense of status, it's become a false god to you because it can never do that. It doesn't matter how high you rise in your career, you will never find fulfillment from that. You'll see people who reach the top, they're the CEOs and they're still not happy. They've accomplished everything they ever set out to accomplish and they still don't have peace, they still don't have joy, they don't have a sense of fulfillment or purpose inside of them because a career can never do that for you. Now what a career is great for is God's given you a way to provide for yourself, he's given you influence over other people, he's given you a position to minister to those that are around you. God wants you to have a career, he wants you to do well in it. It says to do everything we do for the glory of God and to do it as though we're serving God, so clearly you need to work hard at your job and to do well at it. But don't ever look to your career 
to provide you with what it can't provide you. Only Jesus can give you a sense of fulfillment and purpose. And there's other gods that we worship. Uh, one of the things that we do with our careers while we try to work so hard is because we're trying to get money, right? And we think that if we have enough money, then we're going to have security. There's going to be provision for us. I'll never be in need. I'll never be hungry. My family will always be cared for. They'll always be taken care of. When I started saving after Ann and I got married and we set up our, our, the God, our, our 401k plan, and we were sacrificing greatly to it. We were putting lots of money into it. And I was like, I'm going to have $10 million when I retire, which in today's money will be like 57 bucks a year maybe. And, and I was like, look at it, it's growing. And every day I'm checking it and I'm like, yes, we're doing good. And I'm you know, cutting out other things that I wanted to do because I'm just trying to feed this God, the 401k and my Roth IRA. And then, I think it was like, what, 2006 hit? In 2007, and what had been doing so well started to shrink and recede. And every day I'd check it and see how many thousands of dollars I had lost and saw that I wasn't going to have $10 million someday when I retired. I was probably going to go owe money somehow to it. And I started getting like, oh no, I'm worried because I'm not going to be able to do the things I wanted to do when I retire. I'm not going to have enough money. What if I have to go live in like a public nursing home or something? Uh, what if I don't have food? I'm going to be living on ramen noodles when I get old. What I discovered was that this God of money that I had built up and that I had been worshiping, I had been ascribing value and worth, I had been sacrificing to it, it was a false God. It can't provide for me. The little pieces of paper, I mean, it's basically, what's the difference between monopoly money and U.S. government money? The government says this one's valid and the other one's not. But that can change at any time, I discovered. Those imaginary numbers, when I check my online account, those change all the time. Those things actually can't feed me. I tried eating them. There's no nutritional value. You can't live under them. They get wet and soggy. Money is completely worthless. Now, God's given us money. He's entrusted us with money to use to bless other people. But you can't ever look to money to be your security. Because it is here today and it is gone tomorrow. It is a false God. But so many of us look to it, and it's that constant temptation in our hearts to look to money and finances to be a God that will provide something for us that only God can provide for us. What about materialism? We think that things can make us happy. If I just had that new bedroom set, or if I just had this car, if I just had whatever it is, well, then we think that we'd be happy. We'd really have something that would bring us joy. But what I discovered is that no matter what you get, you still want more. I remember being 16 and buying my first car. It was a hmm, 1994 red Chevy Beretta, which I thought at the time was like, this is amazing. I have everything I will ever need in life if I just had that Beretta. It was a two-door, so I thought that was awesome. And a cool kid owned it before me, so I automatically got some cool points like carryover from it. And when I discovered was that the cars break down, they rust, they turn to nothing. And when I got that Beretta, then I was like, mm, you know what I could really use is a Lamborghini. <laughs> Materialism will it'll always tell you that you need this and then you will be happy, you will finally be fulfilled, you'll have what you want in life, but it's a false God, it will never satisfy you. Only Jesus can satisfy you. Only the relationship of knowing that the God of the universe loves you and laid his life down for you and he's adopted you as a son, he's adopted you as a daughter, that's where your satisfaction comes from. That's where your joy comes from. These are false gods. I mean, think about the God of education. I could go on for a long time about the God of education in this city, about what that degree is going to make possible for you in the future. 
and do. Use every advantage, take advantage of every tool that you have. Get an education. Get the best education that you can. But recognize that education is no guarantee of anything in this life. Only Jesus is. He's the one. If your degree doesn't qualify you to do anything, God's provision, his blessing, his favor over you is what's going to qualify you and promote you into the things that he's called you to do. The human heart, though, is always attaching itself to other gods. It's always looking to other things to provide you what only God can provide you with. And that's why he says you have to put away these other gods that you use to worship. And when he says put away, what the imagery that that talks about is it means to remove something by force. It actually means you have to push something away or you have to lift it up to get rid of it because that's the way these gods have become in our heart. After years of living like this, they've become something that are ingrained culturally in us. Even our family, these are things that are a part of us. It's hard not to look to money for security. It's hard not to look for our job for fulfillment. It's hard not to look to things to make us happy because that's been the default way that we've been living for so long. It's the way that our culture constantly bombards us. And that's why it says that we have to put them away. We have to forcibly remove these things. We have to lift the heavy objects. We have to push them away. And you know what else I love about this is Joshua says, these are the gods of your father. These are the gods that your family worshipped before you. You were born into it. This is the way your parents lived their life. And so you grew up living this way And you know what? If you don't put these gods away, then it means that your children are going to worship these gods. It'll be the family gods that you and the generations that come after you will worship. Nobody wants their kid to look to their career as their their source of purpose in their life. If my children grow up and they're just working hard and slaving away at their jobs because they think that's going to give them a sense of purpose, that's heartbreaking to me. I don't want my kids to do that. If my kids are just pursuing money all the time because that's going to give them their security, that would crush me because I recognize that money can't do that for them. If my kids are materialistic jerks and are just trying to acquire more and more things and they're not blessing other people, that would be devastating to me because they were meant for so much more than that. But until I decide that I'm going to dethrone these gods in my life, These are going to be the default gods that my children will worship. And that's why Joshua knows something else. And the third thing we have to know to have a great family is that you need to lead. See, Joshua didn't just cast a vision and give a plan. He led his family by example to the fulfillment of that vision. Joshua didn't just call other people to serve God. Joshua spent his entire life serving God in this way. One of the first glimpses that we get of Joshua is it says that he's Moses' assistant and Moses would go to the tent of meeting where God's presence was and he'd sit outside the tent. And when Moses would come out and he'd go back to the camp, it says that Joshua would stay there. He wouldn't go back with Moses. He knew where the presence of God was and he wanted to be there. He spent his life pursuing the presence of God. He spent his life honoring and serving God with sincerity. He spent his life removing the other gods that were, pers- that were uh, competing for the interest and the effort of his heart. And he led them even when other people didn't want to follow. 
As he's leading Israel, time and time again, they're going back and they're worshiping false gods and they're doing things that they're not supposed to do, but he never gave up. He never said, this is hopeless. You guys are worthless. He kept fighting. He had a vision. He had a plan and he kept pursuing it. He was leading the nation of Israel and he was leading his own family into that vision. And here's a tricky thing about leadership is that you can't lead someone somewhere that you've never been. You have to go there first. You can't lead someone from behind them. You can't push someone into the vision. You can't even walk alongside of them to lead someone. You have to go out in front of them. And that's what Joshua did. He had the vision for the family. He had a plan for how his family would reach that vision. And he went ahead of them to lead them into the fulfillment of that plan. You know, Ann and I, we often talk about what it is that we want for our family, what we want for our marriage, what we want for our kids. We're constantly coming back to that vision of what is it God's called us to. We're, we're committed to loving each other. We're committed to having a marriage that models the way God loves us and laid himself down for us. We're committed to making sure that our children never have to know the pain of divorce. We're committed to raising our children to knowing Jesus, to loving him, to serving him. We're committed to investing in them, to discovering the calling that God has on every one of them and doing everything that we can to propel them into the fulfillment of that calling. And we have a plan for how that's going to happen. And that's why we model love to them. That's why every night we pray together, we read the Bible together, we worship together. That's why we make sure we're going to church together. That's why I make sure that we're serving the Lord together. Because I know that we will never reach the fulfillment of the vision for our family if we don't get going seriously and busily following out this plan to get us there. And then we lead. We set the example for our kids. We even set the example for our our siblings, for our cousins, for our nieces and our nephews. You don't have to be the head of the family to be able to lead your family. You've been called to lead. If you're just a nephew or a niece and you say, I'm not that important in my family, that's not how it works. God's given you a vision. He's showing you how you can lead as a niece, as a nephew. He's showing you how you can lead as a step-parent. He's showing you how you can lead as a son or a daughter. There's a vision that he's given you for the way that you are supposed to live your life to lead the family that God's placed you in. We have to have a vision, we have to have a plan, and we have to do the hard work of getting out there and leading our families. Would you guys stand with me this morning? Um, I love this one. When we think about the family, God has a plan for his family. It says that we were all made to be a part of his family, that we've all been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. And he even refers to us as the church, all of the body of believers, as the bride of Christ. And it says that his vision for us is a pure, spotless, a radiant bride without blemish. That's God's vision for us. But he didn't just have that vision for us because we did not match up to that. But he had a plan. And that plan was for God to take on human form in Jesus, 
to come and to lay his life down for us, to pay the price for our sins, to remove the sin from us so that we could be the righteousness of Christ. And now we can be that radiant, beautiful, spotless, and pure bride that God has called us as a church to be. He didn't just have a vision of adopting you as sons and daughters. He had a plan and he came down and he laid down his very life so that you could be restored to the family that you were made to be a part of. And Jesus led. He came down and he laid his life down. He set the example for us. He showed us the holy possible of a life that's surrendered to the will of the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this morning as we pray, let's just ask God to speak to our hearts to give us vision for the family that we've been given and also to give us vision for the way that we're to fit into his own family. So Father, we come before you this morning and thank you so much for our families, Lord. Through all the good and even through all the hurt and the pain that has happened, Father, we know that you love us and that you love our families and that you have a vision for what our family could be. So Lord, this morning we pray that you would speak to us, that you would fill us with fresh vision for what our family is to be. God, would you speak something that's so compelling into our hearts that we're willing to sacrifice, we're willing to fight, we're willing to push in and to persevere to see it become a reality. And Father, we pray that you would give us a divine plan, God, that you give us steps, that you give us a way that we can see this become a reality in our life, God, in our generation, so that the generations that come after us would be blessed. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would fill us with boldness and that you would fill us with courage so that we can lead our families, God. Would you purify us? Would you make us vessels filled with your glory, filled with your Holy Spirit, so that we can do the work of the ministry that you've called us to, God, so that we can sacrificially love our families and lay our lives down to them to lead them just as you laid your life down for us. And Father, this morning we pray also that you would confirm to us our own identity in your family. A son, a daughter, blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Pure, spotless, holy, without shame, guilt, or condemnation before you, but the righteousness of Christ. And God, would you make that reality, that identity more real to us than anything else in this world. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.